Good morning, everybody. Welcome. If uh, I know we have a couple of visitors this morning. Welcome to the Vero Beach Church of Christ. Uh, my name is Peyton. I'm one of the ministers along with Tracy and uh, us along with our leadership team, our elders. We are grateful that you are here. Today, we are finishing out our testimony series where we have been looking at ordinary people who did extraordinary things to save the life of other people. Now, those extraordinary things they did was not in the action itself, but in the barriers and the, the walls they broke down to do those actions. We learned about a hug given to a Satanist. We learned about uh, somebody who was too far gone um, in racism and hate, who was able to be transformed by the words of Jesus in his, in his Bible. We learned last week about how intelligence is not the opposition of faith. And then this week, we have a potent and very relevant subject. But here's the point of this sermon series. It's, we hope that you have been inspired by these, these stories, that it motivates you and encourages you. But more than anything else, we want you to recognize that you have a testimony as well. You have a story with God. And it doesn't matter if that story is only at its beginning and you are just starting. It doesn't matter if you're at the end of your story and your testimony. It doesn't matter if you're here this morning and you don't even know God. Because God knows you. He knows your story. He's a part of it. He's known you from the very beginning. I read this morning in my, my book and my devotional that we were made in the image of God, meaning there is something inside every human being that is in line with its creator. There's something inside of you, if you are a believer or not, that puts you in touch with God. Birds have wings and they can fly. Fish have fins and they can swim. You are made in the image of God and you were designed to know your creator. So let that be confidence to you regardless of where you are in your journey, that there is power in your testimony. God is not done with you, and you have a story worth telling. Today's testimony is from a man named Greg Johnson, who once identified himself as a gay atheist. But today, he has found a new identity in what he believes has given him a greater sense of self. Now, if you're here today, and you identify outside of the traditional mold of heterosexuality, I want you to hear right here at the beginning that this church loves you. That this church is willing to listen to you with grace-filled ears. And that Jesus died for you just as much as he died for any one of us. Now with that being said, let's use Greg's story and applied with truth and next to truth to hear how we can navigate this issue, this topic that is on the forefront of many people in our world's minds. So Greg Johnson, sorry, I wasn't meant to click there. Maybe you should hold this for me. Greg Johnson was standing in a nearly empty chapel on the grounds of the University of Virginia when he told somebody for the first time that he was gay. It was his mentor named Bill at the time, now, this was in the early 1990s, and at the time of making this confession, Greg was also a newly minted follower of Jesus. Now, 
there was a long journey to get there because Greg was not raised a Christian. In fact, his father was a senior executive in the federal government. And while Greg remembers a good upbringing, it was a completely secular one. Um, They lived in the suburban area of Washington, D.C. Greg's family never went to church growing up. He had never opened a Bible in his life. And at one point, one of his friends came up to him and said, hey, I think you're an atheist. And Greg said, okay, I guess that's what I am. I don't, I don't really know, because he didn't believe in a Near Eastern uh, God of, of, of ancient that seemed to be pulling strings in the universe. He didn't really have a grip or a hold or any grounding on the faith. But what did attach itself to him was Greg's attempts to hide his sexuality. So from the very beginning, Greg always knew there was something different about him. Now, everything I'm telling you in this story is from Greg's mouth himself. So I'm not taking any liberties in the story. I'm just telling you the story in the way he tells it. He tells about one time at the age of six, him wanting a easy bake oven and a porcelain tea set to play with. Now, there's nothing wrong with a young boy wanting to play with items like that. But for Greg, it was just one of many things that added up over time that made him different than the other young boys surrounding him. It wasn't until the age of 11 that the realization finally hit Greg. He felt towards guys what guys felt towards girls. And the 1984 was a terrible time to realize you were gay. As that year progressed, about 100 Uh, Gay men died every week in the U.S. alone. In the next decade, that 100 would multiply by 10. A thousand gay men would die by AIDS every week in the United States alone. So here is what Greg saw. Young men who were like him, at least in their identity and preference, who were getting sick and dying, and other young boys cracking jokes about it. The shame of it all crushed Greg. He lived in a constant dread that somebody, somehow, some way, find out, and he would just be another statistic. So it wasn't until the first day of seventh grade that Greg finally sprang into action trying to hide his identity. He began pinning up tasteful pictures of Marilyn Monroe in his locker like the other boys did, and other posters that other boys were posting in their locker, he began to fitfully try to conceal what psychologist Alan Downs calls velvet rage. Here's what velvet rage is. It's shame and self-hatred, hoping to make oneself more lovable, to make oneself more normal, and for Greg, it means certainly not gay. So he did everything in his power to hide it, and this is Greg a gay atheist teenager trying to hide his shame. Now, Greg's story takes an unexpected turn from there, one that I definitely didn't see coming whenever I first started reading this. The thing that began to crack his life open, one day Greg was sitting and watching the news channel, and he saw a pro-life protest happening in Atlanta, Georgia at the time, and people getting arrested from this protest. Now, Greg had no sympathy for the cause. He, didn't, he barely even knew what abortion was. He never thought about it himself. What did strike Greg was 
clean-cut, middle-class people with families were being arrested for something as insignificant to Greg as an embryo. Something didn't calculate with him. It, it seemed counter to what he knew how the world works. So the irony is later on that year in high school, he was tasked by his teacher to write uh, a, a paper, an essay on a controversial issue. Guess what Greg chose? <laughs> he chose to write it on abortion from what he saw on the television that day. So Greg spent hours in the library studying the topic, and as he studied it more, his heart began to sink. He realized through his study exactly what abortion was, and it, let him, it left him in a very difficult dilemma. Here's the dilemma that Greg found himself in. He asked, had to ask the question, did he believe it was wrong to take a human life? If it wasn't wrong to take a human life, then there wasn't any true value you could attach to a human life, right? It's just you could kind of make that decision whenever, and it was done. If you did believe there was value in human life, then what abortion was could be categorized as evil, or at least in the realm of evil and bad. But the only way that you can determine something to be bad or evil is if there is a contrast to something that is good. Follow me on that logic. Evil and bad only exist in the world where goodness can exist. So the question Greg truly had to answer for himself is what is the source of goodness? Where does goodness come from? And now you see where Greg found himself in the moral argument for the existence of God. And this was an inward tension that Greg struggled with for many years, and he finally graduated high school knowing he had to do something about it. And so get this, and this ties in with this testimony, is he began pursuing the Christian faith because he knew if people were willing to go to jail for a baby that wasn't their own, then they must believe in something that is at least very true for them. And so he wanted to pursue that. What did they believe? Why did they believe it? But in the middle of Greg's journey sat his shame. You know, we often think, or maybe we hope, that things like guilt and shame and anxiety, it will flee at the sight of Jesus. But the truth is, those things are only waiting up for us back at home whenever we eventually return. Greg recalls a prayer that he said early on in his walk with Jesus. I'm just going to read it verbatim for you. This was his prayer as a new, newly minted interest in Jesus, not even a follower yet. God, I don't know who or what you are, but will you please forgive me for being gay? Will you please stop the killing? He's speaking of the abortion incidents. I'm willing to die for you. Just think about that, where he is in his journey. I'm willing to die for you if that is what you want. But I don't know what's wrong with me or what I'm supposed to do. Now let's stop here. Let's let this prayer sink in a little bit more. When was the last time that you have felt such intense inward tearing as that? 
Now, maybe some of you are familiar with that. Likelihood is, as many of us are not. Now, I'm not going to say that God can't use things like guilt as tuggings on our heart to be something better, to pull us towards the image of God. But shame of who we are, how we've been designed, it's painful. It's always painful. And so we tread and we proceed with sympathy. Sympathy for Greg, but sympathy for people who are just like Greg, who live a very different life than us, who believe very different things, and who may struggle very differently. So Greg didn't know anything about Christianity at the time. So he first learned about Christianity while studying architecture at the University of Virginia. Now here's what, here's what uh, Greg knew about the Christian faith. These are the three things he knew. Number one, he knew that Jesus came for the sinful. He knew he, that he came for the unhealthy, the sick, right? Not the healthy. He knew that. Greg knew that Jesus promised to take into himself all of the guilt and shame that Greg and other people like him felt and bear it with him to the cross. And he knew that God loved people like Greg. That's it. That's all Greg knew. That's all Greg needed to know at that moment in his life. He didn't need to know opinions or convictions or promises or judgments. He needed to know those three truths. And at the age of 20, Greg was baptized and gave his life to Jesus. The following year, he moved to St. Louis, where he enrolled in seminary, not to become a pastor, but because he wanted to know more about the Bible and theology. And it was only there that he began to experience the true power of the gospel. Decades have passed since that moment when he gave his life to Jesus. At the age of 46, Greg is still a virgin, fighting a constant battle for sexual holiness. Now, there, studies have shown there's no real cases in which same-sex attraction simply disappears. And while sexuality has a degree of fluidity in some people, the real change for Greg was not in his sexual orientation. His real change was in his life orientation. Jesus had rescued him. Now, follow me through with this, because for so much of his life, Greg lived, and this is a quote, as a unicorn in a field of horses. That's what he described himself. Now think about how many of us live our life. We try to push back of being the average Joe, right? We want to be unique. We want to be special. We want to stand out. For Greg, that's the very opposite of what he wanted in his life. He wanted to blend in. He wanted to go unnoticed. But these were the cards. This was Greg's reality. And he chose, he made a choice to accept Jesus as king of his life. We'll get to that here more in a second. But first I want to say, again, tying in with this idea of testimony, Greg is extremely thankful for his campus pastor, Bill, who we were introduced to at the beginning of his story the very first person that Greg confessed being gay to, and here's why he's so grateful for that moment, Bill loved him. Bill didn't try to fix Greg. He didn't try to control him. 
He didn't try to ship him off or even convert him. Bill loved Greg. He welcomed him into his home. He sat down with him and invested many hours in him. In fact, it was Bill who first suggested that Greg go to seminary and begin praying about that opportunity. Greg says later on in his life, Jesus hasn't made me straight, but he does cover my shame. Jesus really does love gay people. The gospel doesn't erase this part of Greg's story so much as it redeems it. Greg's sexual orientation doesn't define him the same way yours doesn't define you. It's not, at least I hope not, the most important or more, most interesting thing about you. <laughs> I hope there's something more. Our sexual orientation is simply the backdrop for the story of Jesus and how he is working in our life. And listen, I understand I have been praying about this sermon for months now, knowing that it is coming. Today's testimony and topic is not easy. Some of you may walk away angry, while others of you may walk away feeling justified by what you hear today. Neither of those are my goal. Sexuality, specifically homosexual tendencies, is not as cut and dry or black and white as many of us would like it to be. And those whose identity, who, who identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual, they are real people just like you. They are equally complex, just as you are. And what they feel, feels just as real as what you feel. Historically, we in the church, we haven't done a great job at conversations about homosexuality. We've done an even poorer job about caring about those who experience it. And so humbly and with an open mind, we look to the Bible on what it says. And I'm going to take a different approach. I want to talk about three ways we've gone wrong as a church about talking about homosexuality, because I know who I'm talking about, talking to in this crowd, but also holding on to truth while we do it. So the first one, we're wrong if we believe God doesn't care about sexuality. He does care about it. Now the Bible's depiction of sexuality hangs on so much more than just a collection of verses, but let me just cite off a couple of them. Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22, or chapter 20, verses 13. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. We'll get back to that one. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. I'm going to read that one for you, and I underlined a part that I want you to focus on. Do not be deceived. Paul says, neither you're sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not, Paul says, be deceived. Possessing a desire innately just shows us that we have a corrupt heart that needs to be redeemed by the gospel. But the gospel message is not let gay become straight. The gospel message is let the dead, and that's all of us, become alive again. Amen? And if somebody says, well, I was born this way, I'll say, I don't dispute that. But just possessing a desire innately doesn't make it right. 
And that's true for anger, it's true for ambition, and it's certainly true for sexual desires. They're not right simply because they come from deep within me. My feelings are fickle. My knowledge is limited. So I must take those two things and align it with who God says that I am. And that is through pursuit in his word, through active prayer with him, and through a community of believers. We cannot trust in just what we feel. I mean, I, I try to imagine my wife and me having a conversation and me telling her, listen, I, I've been dedicated to you for the past decade and I plan to for the next venture of my life. I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you, but I also feel inside of me an attraction to other women every once in a while. And I think God has called me to be a polygamist. And I'm not trying to just build a straw man. I'm talking about what feelings can actually get us to if they go left unchecked. And Darian would probably say, well, I have a feeling I need to smack you upside the head with a two by four, and I don't want to see that to its completion either. But you get my point. The second thing, we're wrong if we think same-sex behavior is a different type of sin. So Romans chapter 1, Paul lists same-sex behavior as one corruption among many others. Now we may not think of deceit or boasting or greed or strife or a rebellious attitude towards our parents as equally depraved as same-sex behavior, but for Paul, it just makes the list. In another one of his letters, Galatians chapter 4, Paul even talks about the pride that comes from religion of this obsession to be right over somebody else, as if we can laud that over another person, putting ourselves in a more elevated position, a position not designed by God, but designed by ourself. Now, if that is not equally deprived, then it should be. In fact, our goal should never be about discovering and debating the most egregious sins in Scripture. Sin is sin. Deceit is deceit. Lust is lust. Corruption is corruption. And Jesus tells those listening to his sermon on the mountainside, don't pay more attention to the devilish outcomes of sin than you do to the devious beginnings of it. Because that is where sin lives. And in other words, let me put it more practically and more straightforward with you. Many of you tomorrow will likely not wake up in another woman's bed. But if you're not careful, another woman will wake up in the bed of your heart, and that can begin as soon as today. We are all guilty. The reality is, when we go back to our topic, Jesus met those in sexual sin graciously. He often invited them back to a closer relationship with him. His most difficult conversations with the sharpest edge was towards the religiously elite, the ones who believed they had the answers, they had it all figured out, and began to categorize people based off of what they do and not whose image they were made in. Now, my point is not to say same-sex behavior is not sinful. Here is my point, is that we often present it differently than the Bible does. We present it as this sort of uber sin in a categorically different realm. But if you want to know what the worst sin is, the sin of all sins, the sin that drives behind every other sin, it's this, 
the sin that still exists in your heart today. The sin that is still alive. We only grasp the gospel when we understand, as Paul did, that we are the worst sinners that we know. And if Jesus came to die for us, there's nobody he didn't come to die for. And when we realize that, we cease to be Pharisaic teachers of the law and we become gospel witnesses. We start loving our neighbor as people who are equally made in the image of God as us. We begin feeling compassion for people in their weakness, and we will see in the face of every sinner a reflection of the own corruption that exists in our own life. The fruit of rebellion that we are participating in. And number three, we're wrong if we assume it's hard for LGBT people to get to heaven. Let me say it clearly. Homosexuality does not send you to hell. I know that because heterosexuality doesn't send you to heaven. What separates a person from God is refusing to allow Jesus to be Lord and center of your life, regardless of how that manifests. Whether it's in your refusal to let Jesus be the Lord and center of your sexual life, or it's refusal to let Jesus be Lord and center of your money, or if refusing to allow Jesus to be Lord and center of your career or your family, it's not where you express your rebellion, it's that it exists. Rosaria Butterfield, a former practicing lesbian and professor of literature and women's studies at Syracuse University, that was a mouthful, she says, that the pastor who led her to Christ refused at first to even argue or talk about her lesbianism. She said instead, he told her, according to Romans 1, the real issue was who got to call the shots in her life? Who was the Lord of her life? You might remember that question from last week when our, our person of knowledge sat in the sermon for the first time and heard that question, who is the Lord of your life. Who got to define who Rosaria Butterfield was and how she sought fulfillment? Romans 1, Rosaria explains, revealed her heart. She goes on to say that Romans 1, in Romans 1, Paul basically presents that we are all Eve in the Garden of Eden. We all come to a moment when we have to decide who gets to determine what is good and right in my life. Who gets to determine what is true for me? Is it what I'm hoping, what I desire, what I feel even at my core, or is it what my creator has said about me? In her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she says this, homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil play judge rather than be judged, a desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than pleasure for his glory. And what that means is that repentance for the gay or lesbian person looks fundamentally the same as it does for the straight and religious person. I want to do something a little bit different again with you here. 
I'm going to ask everybody, I'm going to say a prayer of repentance right now to give you an idea of what I mean. I'm just going to ask everybody to close your eyes. I'm not going to blow you with confetti or anything like that, I promise. But just close your eyes. Here's why I want you to close your eyes, because I don't want you to think about the other or the person next to you or have somebody else in your mind outside of you, because this is a prayer of repentance for you as much as it is for anybody else. It goes something like this. God, I am sorry for elevating my desires over your will. God, I am sorry for attempting to define my identity apart from your design for me. God, I am sorry for seeking satisfaction and self-fulfillment rather than from giving glory to you. I recognize Jesus as Lord and I turn control over to him. You can open your eyes. That's what repentance looks like for the gay or the straight, for the rich or the poor, for the young or the old, for the Jew or the Gentile, for the black person or the white person. We all come to Jesus the same exact way. The good news is that Jesus came for sinners, sinners of all types. And as the church, this truth should define the way we interact with gay and lesbian people as we communicate to them this truth. God loves you. We don't believe your sexuality defines you because our sexuality doesn't define us. In fact, we love you and we want to talk to you with a voice of grace because that's the way we want to be talked to as well. As has been the case with all of the lessons in this testimony series, there's many takeaways we can pull from this lesson. Today, I just want to give you one, though. One thing, and I believe it brings together all of these testimonies we've talked about in this series, all of the points we've tried to point out and highlight in this series, and it brings them into one sentence that I want you to take away with you. Your true identity is ultimately based on what God has done for you. Your identity is not based in your sexuality, nor is your identity based in your accomplishments. God doesn't love you more because you're heterosexual, and he doesn't love you less if you're homosexual. Your identity is not based in your mistakes, nor is it based in your virtues. When Jesus died on the cross, it was for all people who sinned all kinds of ways and live all different types of life. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you have a new identity with him. And the more you get to know Jesus through his word, through time in prayer, through time with his church, the more you will begin to understand your identity in him. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you will be able to identify the areas of your life that don't live into your identity. And that is true for all people. I'm not just pointing out a certain group here. I'm talking to everybody in this room. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you will begin to identify where your identity needs to be. That is true for gay people. It's true for angry people. Those who are abusive, lust-filled, drunk, and greedy. You just go back to Romans 1, go down that list, and find your name. 
Because it's written there. Here's the last thing I want to say. Those who are outside of Christ are going to live by standards the world has established as morally true and correct. Our job as followers of Jesus is not to go out into the world and to prove them wrong. That's not our job. Our job as followers of Jesus is to go out into the world and to prove to them Jesus is right. So the question we have to ask ourselves, how can I live a life that not only shows less of me, but shows more of him? How can I live a life that doesn't scream to the world what I believe, but points to Jesus on who he says I am? How can I live a way in this life that puts the arrows off of the way I live my life and who I vote for and the convictions I have and where I may be sexually oriented or what I feel deep inside of me instead of points to my creator who is also your creator and is also the other person in your life's creator. Because all of our testimonies, they revolve around a person and his name is Jesus. And you have a testimony. You have a story. And the true power in your story is not going to be in how you identify yourself. The true power in your testimony is who it's actually about. It's about what Jesus has already done in your life and what he will continue to do. So who and how are you going to go share your testimony with now? Because there's power in it. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you with hearts maybe that are heavy, with hearts that may feel justified, angry, hurt, or lost. Father, we pray that both through this lesson and lessons that preceded it, that God, we will hear your voice. That we're not going to hear the voice of Peyton. We're not going to hear the voice of Tracy. We're not going to hear the voice of individual people. We're not even going to hear our own voice. But Father, that we are people followers of Jesus that are looking or pointing our compass at what God has designed for us. And God, I pray that while we talked about a specific topic today, that we will recognize we are all guilty. We all fall short of the glory of God, but despite our failures and our falling, while we were still sinning, Jesus died for us not so that we can live on boasting in that sin to receive more grace, but God, so that we can be thankful for it and find ways to transform our lives by it. God, you are good all the time, and all the time you are good. And God, I pray that every single soul in this room, everybody listening to this later, that they will recognize they were made in the image of God. And wherever they are, however they identify, whoever they voted for, whatever secret sin lives in their heart, that you are willing to redeem them from it, to transform them, to make them more like you. God, this is a prayer we all need. Make us more like you. Help us have hearts of repentance, hearts of sympathy, and hearts that are constantly and continually looking to you. We say this prayer. In the name of our Savior Jesus, who made all of this possible, amen.